This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by digital journalist Hamish Penman and emerging markets editor Ed Reed. Uh, hello, both. Now, Ed, most folk will recall you, of course, as Africa and LNG editor. Tell us a bit about this uh, this changing role. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm all about personal growth, Alistair. <laughs> yeah, you're so zen. I'm just, you know, always always looking at, you know, just ways to become, just become more me. Um so yeah, so emerging markets is is the plan. So it just gives me a bit more scope to uh, look beyond Africa. So I mean, I've been doing you know sort of a bit of Middle East and 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 obviously just kind of growing, right? So hello Southeast Asia, hello Latin America. It's all uh, it's all grist to my finely tuned mill. He's the international man, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how this develops. What it, Mr. Worldwide is that not Pitbull? I mean Ed. <laughs> Pitbull. I mean, there's a there's a mashup there somewhere for uh, for somebody. But <laughs> I'm ready. I, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Okay, but well, let's we'll hear more from Ed uh, in a little bit in terms of his piece. But we'll kick off this week with some big news of the last few days, and that is the takeover of Neptune Energy by Italian oil giant ENI and Hamish. Bring us up to speed as to what's been going on there. Yeah, the uh, the M&A wagon rolls well and truly on. Um, this one will be of little surprise to anyone, I think, given that we've. Uh, well, it's been mooted, rumoured for about the last year now. But yeah, Neptune Energy will soon become part of ENI. Neptune Energy Norway will become part of VAR Energy, which is majority owned by ENI. Um, so immediately after the VAR transaction closes, the ENI transaction will follow suit. So the deal worth uh, in the region of $4.9 billion dollars. Right at the bottom end of what had been reported um, throughout this saga, I think it was six, seven. Um, was suggested at some point. Um, perhaps this is maybe a, a reflection of tax regimes in the Netherlands and the UK. I've seen that suggested um, where Neptune has uh, big operations in both country. Um, so government clearance on the deal is expected by the first quarter of next year. Neptune's operations in Germany, which I think they have, they've got some on shore um, wells there, they won't be sold. They will be, um, continue to be carved out and, and operated by the existing shareholders as a standalone. Um, and the general message from all three parties is that this will enhance the technical financial capabilities, provide energy security, help them help the, their energy transition goals, all of those lovely little phrases. Um, so in the UK, Neptune is kind of best known for its gas operations, specifically Cygnus, which is one of the UK's biggest gas fields, I think can account for 6% of UK demand at capacity. It's also got stakes in the, the Seagull and, and Isabella projects and some CCS ambitions too. Um, at the time of writing last week, it was we understood the company employs around 200 people, um, split between Aberdeen and London. We understand there aren't going to be any implications on jobs. That's obviously the, always the twitchy thing when these deals are announced. Um, but E&I's footprint in the UK, especially operationally, is pretty limited. So you would imagine that these employees will it will be business as usual continuing to operate the assets that they've been working on for for years now um so for the just on eni's books the transaction adds about 484 million barrels of oil equivalents um about 80 percent of that's natural gas uh for var the deal gives the company a stake in 12 producing assets offshore norway um three of which will be as operator seven are owned by equinor 
And on completion of the deal, 67,000 barrels of oil equivalent will be added to VAR's daily production um, and about 265 million barrels of oil equivalent to 2P reserves. Um, Looking at this, I suppose, in the wider context of the North Sea, perhaps a a tad surprising that such a big major has come in for it. I don't think we would see the UK majors um, completing this type of deal. They seem to be a bit more reticent. Shell's Boss all but ruled out M&A um, during their capital markets day a couple of weeks ago. I know Total Energies were in the running and were pipped to the post by E&I, so perhaps the European majors aren't trying to streamline their portfolios quite as much. Um, I would imagine that the Norwegian assets were probably a big sway in this deal, given that VAR has been, given their activities on the other side of the North Sea, they have been very, very active there. Um, And in the UK, I would say that the Neptune's focus on CCS, that fits nicely with E&I's operations already, um, especially they've got high net projects over at Liverpool Bay. Um, So I imagine that's probably where they they think they can achieve some some synergies there. No, for sure. I mean, uh, it's, as as you say, Hamish, it wasn't... uh, it wasn't a massive surprise when the news came out, uh, given what had been been trailed. Um, clearly, uh, Neptune is a, a private equity-backed firm, and they were looking for an exit. Uh, it had long been, or it had certainly been mooted in the past, and it's will they, won't they IPO, um, and they didn't, and there may be all kinds of reasons for that. The only thing we can perhaps point to is there's only been one other IPO of its kind in recent times, and that's Ithaca Energy in November. Um, obviously, their shares have um, dropped somewhat since then, um, may have played into Neptune's thinking there, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it sounds like a good fit with ENI. Um, just to talk a little bit about the run-up to it, and this is going down speculation alley, but that's never stopped us before. Um, obviously, there was a bit of ENI cools on deal with uh, Neptune through the, the agency copy in the weeks ahead of this. I, I do, you know, kind of find myself wondering, is that a bit of kind of gamesmanship here? You know, lower your price or we walk. We don't know. We can't answer that. But, um, you know, you, you do wonder. No impact on jobs. That's great. And you can see how the kind of Neptune's gas waiting um, along with, as you say, Hamish, the Norwegian portfolio um, really kind of played into their hands there. Um, but we're looking at quite a long lead time for completion of this deal. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so the first quarter of next year, um- I'm trying to think of other similar deals that, if we take the Harbour deals of Chris Orr and Premier, I'm sure that was announced in perhaps October, November and was completed by, I think, January or February. So that was quite a quick turnaround. I don't know why the holdup will be here. I mean, it's obviously a different deal. It will come with its own challenges. So, so, so perhaps it, perhaps they don't see it as that quick a turnaround. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ruthlessly insert myself into this conversation, which may feel like it's got nothing to do with, uh, with, with, with my things. But I, I would suggest perhaps it's the number of assets in different countries. I mean, I think uh, obviously Neptune has got, uh, I think there's two at the gas field in in Algeria, um, and I think Algeria has proved. Occasionally challenging for uh, for M and A in the past. Uh, Total uh, had a swing at it a couple of years ago, and it all fell apart quite spectacularly. So, I mean, I think that's 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 possibly one reason. And I think just just to kind of continue on that that Algerian note for a moment, I think this now means with the sale of Neptune that there are no UK companies in the upstream uh, oil and gas sector in Algeria which uh, feels like an interesting move. And obviously, Italy and any kind of thinking about sort of strategic uh, gas supplies into into Italy, but obviously also the UK, 
this kind of feels like uh like like a like a quite a sensible step doesn't it i mean i think you know kind of post 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 russia invasion post uh post post lng price spike stitching up some uh, some additional gas supplies feels like a like a, like a good move for the italians i think maybe that adds us on to one further point we should probably highlight we talked about the as far as the uk goes we don't think there's going to be any job uh, implications now when it comes to other areas like Indonesia, for example, where Neptune is a portfolio, and uh, as uh, as as Ed says, Algeria. We don't know, um, but perhaps you know it might not be quite so straightforward for those uh, areas. But yeah, I think I think you've probably hit the nail on the head there, Ed, in terms of what may uh, make things drag on a bit. So I mean, I've got a question about the sort of the private equity backers, right? Presumably, they now walk away with a big pot of cash. Do you think that they're going to be looking in the North Sea for some more tasty expansion? Or, uh, or or are they going to move into something else? I don't have any insight to that, but no, I don't either. I would I would <laughs> say, given the trends, if you were somebody looking to um, repeat your successes of the past um, with some different portfolios, and you had a big wad of cash to do it with, I don't think the UK, well, UK North Sea, I don't think is where you would look to do it currently. I I would say that's the bottom line. Um, I might be wrong on that. And Sam Laidlaw might well invest all of his cash back in the UK North Sea, so we'll see. Well, yeah, there's questions about the investment environment. I think uh, in, in terms of, again, kind of rampant speculation, and there is private equity deals going on. Um, I mean, I think I think 2.4 billion, recalling a story we had from last year, this is in 2022 or, or 2021, I should say. So obviously things have changed a bit since then. Um, one can't help but think perhaps Norway would be a more appetizing area. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, you can you can maybe see that logic when you consider things like the EPL, when you consider uh, the policies of uh, upcoming uh, political parties that may well form the next government. Um, so you you can understand that. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. So okay, well. Look, thanks, thanks for that analysis, Hamish. We'll be obviously keeping an eye on the ENI logo going above Neptune's headquarters in Aberdeen uh, whenever that happens. Um, next up, we'll be moving on to a bit of exploration right after this. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we've done quite a bit on exploration of late, including a look at some of the winners and losers in the last six months uh, in the North Sea, and we'll maybe get to that in a sec. But I want to start with the energy security context here. This week, we have a report from the Committee on Climate Change. That's the UK's UK government's top advisors on that subject, who said that the UK has lost its clear global leadership on climate action. Now, a number of reasons for that, varied reasons. Among them are what they call confusing signals on the UK government's priorities, namely through support for new oil and gas exploration and opening of a new coal mine in Cumbria. So to take 
the North Sea side of that, the exploration side. In response to the CCC report, the trade body OE UK, Offshore Energies UK, said the findings are paradoxical. And the case is, they argue, that on one hand, the CCC is saying that the UK is being far too slow on building new infrastructure for low-carbon electricity. I think everyone broadly agrees with that. But at the same time, the CCC supports a ban on new oil and gas exploration. And the the OEUK point here is to mitigate um, UK production decline, new exploration is needed. And following the CCC's recommendations, when you consider a drop in production versus we need to rapidly increase infrastructure being built, um, it could lead to, as they say, a homegrown energy crisis by around 2028. So, the arguments around the need for new infrastructure for things like offshore wind, etc., are quite clear and I think pretty much uh, universally accepted. It's the exploration side. Would new exploration make a material difference in terms of mitigating that decline in the North Sea? Analysts, in a nutshell, have said no. And we heard last week Wood Mackenzie saying new exploration will have a minimal impact on further investment plans. Tax policy, much more important. They talked about the fact that the vast majority of uh, resource, estimated resource left in the North Sea is in existing fields, uh, existing licenses, I should say, and in sanction-ready projects, things like your Cambos and Rosebank, about 7 billion barrels, just 1 billion in undiscovered resource is estimated. And Bar things like the Pensacola discovery this year, which is still being appraised, the last major new discovery brought online in the UK, according to them, was from a 2012 licensing round, over a decade ago. So by virtue of that, the argument there is that new exploration will not have a material impact in terms of investment in the North Sea and indeed extracting uh, new resource. Now, to take Labour's policy um, as through this, I mean, I guess Wood Woodmacker interpreting what's been said by Keir Starmer and the like so far as you know existing fields and presumably side um, tiebacks to them will not be kind of impacted by their plans. I think it's fair to say that the piecemeal approach from Labour isn't really helping in painting a clear picture, and there is ambiguity there. I mean, as we're going going into tiebacks, almost all new. Production from the North Sea is going to come from these tieback fields brought into production hubs. Now, you know, would a new licensing um, being blocked, you know, affect that? You know, could these technically be classed as new fields? Um, but are, you know, the, in reality, they're just extensions of existing older, larger hubs. So, you know, there could be some issues around that. Labour have said this week that they'd keep existing fields going for the entirety of their lifespans. One would assume that would cover tiebacks, but it's quite an important detail. So anyway, assuming you know the resource left in the UK shouldn't be making a huge impact in terms of stemming the decline, um, I think that's why some of these other elements, getting wind infrastructure, CCS, electric vehicles, hydrogen, so on, is so important in that time frame. Uh, and maybe the last point to make here, you know, Apito projecting 50,000 job losses from oil and gas by 2030. Um, and it seems to me that, you know, accelerating efforts on these new, ener- new energies is probably a better use of time than, um, you know, stressing too much about um, new exploration. Now, the new fields that will be coming online, like Rosebank and Cambo, yeah, I can see the case there. But based on the information we've got, yeah, there's maybe a question around this new exploration versus energy security side. Well, I mean, hey, so I I suppose the question for me would always be kind of about the the question of price, isn't it? I suppose that's how sort of energy security manifests. And I suppose, you know, does new exploration in the North Sea 
uh, have a material impact on prices? Possibly not. Um, so I can I can see a certain degree of of, of sort of uh, laxity around on, on that side, but. I suppose, obviously, looking at you know, I suppose a question of of, of where all demand goes, but it, it it feels like presumably that that does mean that uh, imports would increase. So there is uh, reliance on other parts of the world, and as we've seen with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that 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 can lead to uh, unexpected uh, outcomes. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think in terms of price, I, I'm not sure anyone could realistically argue that um, extracting the every last drop of the North Sea will make a material impact in terms of um, global benchmarks. Again, you know, but 2 billion barrels in these kind of sanction-ready projects, which Labour says they would not impact, uh, they would not, um, you know, withdraw the licences for should they get into power. That's your things, as I say, like Rosebank and Cambo. As far as like the wider North Sea Basin goes, these are material. In terms of the remaining kind of untouched, um, untapped uh resource beyond that, you know, that's what uh, places like Woodmac are saying, this is quite a small resource and it's not really going to make a material impact in terms of investment. There's all quite, quite small discoveries, right? So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think the, the question of price will, will, will play too much into that. Um, I think, I think the, the much more valid argument, certainly from the, the, the OUKs, and then they have been making this, is that the, the economic side and the jobs side, if you wind down the industry too quickly, and you haven't got this replacement, this new infrastructure that the CCC is talking about, then where do all the jobs go? Where does that industry go? Uh, and, you know, what, talk about homegrown energy supply. You know, if you lose all the jobs and, and you lose the workforce and you don't have a replacement for them, then you've got a problem. But, uh, yeah, I guess I guess we'll see. And I think, I think more detail in terms of exactly spelling out what Labour um, are proposing would probably uh, help people come to the right conclusions around this. Yeah, it was just in the fact that um, there's been so few um, big discoveries made that have then reached development. I think it was, I, I remember I was at a business um, breakfast where Ross Dornan said that the average age of uh, fields in development now, I think they were found about 30 years ago or something. So there's clearly not that not that quick turnaround. Um, but I was at another business breakfast on Tuesday um, in which they were also addressing the uh, quite how slow the turnaround is for offshore wind, right? So the projects that are currently um, becoming operational now were awarded when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister. So there is a big issue there as well about um, lead times. And I think there just seems to be this general feeling that everything that is happening is happening too slowly. I mean, it takes over 10 years for an offshore wind farm to, to get operational. So if you're wanting to absorb jobs from there, you've got to be starting them pretty much now which i mean some are but not enough that will probably offset the set the jobs there so yeah, i mean i think the big the interesting thing will be labor's attitude to to tiebacks to these smaller fields that will be quicker to get online will probably have a lower emissions footprint there's probably a much higher justification for those um but obviously because they're smaller and easier to do they don't come with the same amount of they don't require the same amount of um of people working on them so that there's, there's still going to be that jobs implication i mean i suppose my question is i mean i think you know obviously the, you know looking at these new jobs coming up offshore wind you know hydrogen ccs whatever i think you know obviously it feels like these jobs are going to be coming right if if you know the, the government's plans you know we make some sort of progress towards that whether we hit those targets obviously an open question but i guess it's that question is that is that um it's that sort of emphasis on good jobs isn't it 
um, and, and the extent to which are those jobs as remunerative as existing jobs in oil and gas? Are those projects, uh, do, they, do they give us good returns? And I, I mean, obviously, you guys have more of a feeling on that, but I, but I, I, I kind of feel that maybe they don't, that 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 maybe they aren't uh, as as well paying as, as as oil and gas ones. Maybe I'm wrong. You tell me. Uh, we, we've we've tried a few times to kind of do comparisons. Oftentimes, there aren't quite like for like, and it sounds a bit of a non-answer. But I, I think I think between you know a rope access technician for a wind farm and an oil and gas installation, you know, I, I find it difficult. Being a layman, uh, seeing why there would be too much of a difference there. A project manager getting more into executive level, clearly there's going to be other kind of considerations um, around it. I mean, you do hear, obviously, um, the the salary sizes for guys working um, rotas offshore. Um, you know, I think I think the received wisdom is that uh, the pay for offshore wind, as things stand, isn't quite there. Nonetheless. We need to be cognizant of the fact that oil and gas salaries and terms have uh, dropped in recent years too. I mean, a lot of the time people are saying to me, I would be better off just working on a construction site onshore than working offshore. So make of that what you will. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the remuneration question is one of several that need to get um, solved before we make this transition over. I mean, not least, you know, we've talked in time again about this skills passport to, you know, avoid duplicated training costs. Um, but I mean, at this point, you know, question number one remains that infrastructure, that grid piece and getting that up and running in any kind of timely fashion in order to facilitate these new wind farms and uh, thereby provide the, the job opportunities that they will, they will then bring. Um, and there's only a limited time to do that um, in order to, you know, kind of get it going before the supply chain crunches, if you like. So, Anyway, on that happy note, <laughs> we'll, we'll probably leave that section there and uh, something completely different right after this. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, so we've stopped exploring for now, but we will move on now to Senegal. And Ed, this country has joined this kind of multi-country partnership on the energy transition, which, you know, is kind of along the lines of what we were just talking about. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose, you know, like it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it, to sort of talk about that sort of just uh, energy transition, you know, both in the North Sea, right, which is obviously kind of critical for, for kind of creating, you know, new jobs and, and, and new opportunities. And we're seeing, you know, kind of a, a sort of a similar sort of a dialogue play out in, in, in terms of some of these kind of uh, emerging markets which are moving uh, well. So, so in some cases into energy access at, at all, right, which... You know, you know, it's that sort of incredibly uh, often touted statistic about sub-Saharan Africa having 600 million people who lack access to electricity, which obviously is 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 something that really needs to change. So, 
Last week, there was a big funding uh, hoopla in, uh, in, in, in Paris. Uh, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of African uh, heads of state you know, came in to, to kind of see what was going on. And uh, Maggie Sell, the president of Senegal, came and uh, they, they, they signed off on a, on a big two and a half odd billion euro deal where uh, European countries and I think it was Canada agreed to, to, to inject this cash to uh, essentially drive this energy transition in, uh, in Senegal. So the first JetP, as they're known, uh, was, 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 was agreed in Glasgow in the heady days of, of COP26. Uh, since then, there's been a couple more, uh, but this is the first one uh, where. Uh, so previously, they've sort of focused more on on, on helping countries get away from uh, burning coal, essentially. So South Africa was the first one. South Africa has something like eighty percent of its generation comes from coal. Senegal, that's not the case. Uh, it, it, it mostly runs on sort of heavy fuel oil, which obviously not great for the environment. It, it comes at a, at a fair price. So um, the idea that you know that 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 you know natural uh, that renewables could could play a part in uh, in, in in helping uh, Senegal increase its energy access, obviously very welcome. I think it was also quite interesting how in the communique on 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 this 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 jet P with Senegal, there was there was mention of of, of sort of uh, in, of recognizing Senegal intended to use natural gas as part of its of its. Uh, energy needs so just just to remind you bp and cosmos are uh, doing some 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 big uh, offshore gas fields uh, off, off senegal and mauritania that should start producing lng later this year uh, and there is more to come and so in addition to those those lng hopes there is there are there are plans to sort of bring some of that gas onshore and into 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 local generation so it feels like uh, quite an important move because it, I mean, obviously the, the European desire to sort of support hydrocarbon projects in, in Africa obviously has been much reduced over the last few years. UK export finance obviously will no longer support those sorts of projects. But it feels like um, there is still this need to create you know, essentially baseload, right? I think you know we, you know, there, there, there is sort of an acceptance that sort of solar and wind can play a part in, 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 in bringing you know new energy to to the continent. But there is also a, a you know, a, a need to, to kind of get things up and running. And in a way, it kind of feels like natural gas has, has kind of got the edge. You know, like it can be built quickly. It's um, you know relatively cheaply. You can install it in a sort of a single location. So it, it it really provides some some really uh, good options for places like Senegal, and but it's it's part of this sort of ongoing challenge we've seen where you know African governments say again and again you know we we want to move to new energies we want to move to solar and wind but we also want to use our own natural resources, and you know it's it's it's. Obviously, you know, kind of gas has got a, a role to play in that. So uh, this week, I was I was at a conference, the Global Energy Week, and I was doing a panel with some uh, largely sort of financiers, and we were talking about this exact problem. And I and I kind of started, you know, feeling a bit bit pessimistic about how things were going. But I think the the my my, my banking friends were, were were largely positive about the sort of the the appetite for for new investments about. A desire to kind of help you know sort of drive uh, this you know use of, of their own resources, partly from you know banks in North America, but also from new uh, financial sources. So Asia, the Middle East, there is a sort of a recognition that um, the the energy transition 
might need a bit of uh, might need a bit of gas to to kind of get it rolling. So I came away pretty positive. It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, hearing. I mean, I think the just transition language um, in the North Sea it, it, that kind of broadly refers to, you know, communities and workers, and you think of you know the. Um, the, the removal of coal in the West Coast um, back during Thatcher's years, you know, and the just transition for workers and communities. In the COP kind of case, the just transition, as far as I kind of understand it, is much more to do with climate change and, and, and the areas around that. So just, I mean, and you touched on it there, Ed, I mean, in terms of how they're defining just transition here, I mean, it sounds like it's a bit of both in terms of that climate perspective, but also, I guess, in terms of that community side, because, you know, we're talking a little bit about Senegal's desire to use its own resources uh, inclusive of gas. Yeah, and I, and I think it, 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 when you talk to uh, people from Africa, African ministers, it is it is it is this kind of feeling of justice, right? I mean, I think this is kind of the the kind of the idea that kind of gets you know brought up again and again. And uh, often these countries uh, lack the sort of financial resources to 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 do it on their own, so they will need external financing. And it's it's really that kind of you know obviously uh, you know we've got sort of you know targets to reduce emissions but we've also got uh, I think oh crumbs is it SDG seven which is universal energy access for all by twenty thirty and uh, essentially we're going in the wrong direction on that right the population growth is such that uh, in fact there are now more people uh, in sub-Saharan Africa who uh, lack access to power than they did a couple of years ago. So, I mean, I think, you know, really this is, uh, it, it, and that's, that's where it's a justice issue, right? I think that's, that's why people feel that essentially in places like the UK or the US, you know, when we, you know, use offshore wind in combination with gas and sometimes coal, we see that as a way to obviously kind of balance our grid. Uh, when you're in, I don't know, Mauritania or Senegal and they're saying, you know, our people, you know, say, 50% of the people in, in, in the Senegalese countryside don't have access to power at all. The idea that, you know, we would be sort of actively stopping them from, uh, you know, accessing energy feels like a, like a justice question. But then it becomes, a you know, a kind of the, in, the, in, in the panel yesterday, I was, I was quite keen to sort of try and move it away from just this kind of, you know, this kind of accusations of kind of neocolonialism, which kind of get thrown around a bit and, you know, about how the West, you know, kind of, you know, uses Africa for its own needs. Because I don't feel that's really very truthful or, or very useful. Um, so I think it, we, we were trying to sort of work out how should we move forwards, right? And I think um, that's why I think there's, that's why I think the communique of the, the, the JEP with Senegal was kind of important because it, 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 it says actually maybe there is a role for gas. I don't think there's going to be any prospects for, for sort of financing a new coal power generation in, in Africa. I mean, you know, really anywhere in the world i think even china is kind of you know obviously moving away from it but it feels like you know gas is is going to be an opportunity and i think you know obviously there are ways to do it and i think there are i think there's there's there's, there's also kind of questions about a timeline right so you know can you can you build uh, and and run a gas powered plant for say 15 years rather than sort of 30 that one might otherwise have expected 
you know, obviously that's kind of a question around design and around feedstocks and around pricing. But I think that's sort of the discussion that we need to be having rather than the sort of, you know, butting heads around, around you know, uh, you know, with sort of accusations flying and things like that. That's not useful. Let's try and work out something that will deliver the amount of power that is needed. Obviously, solar, obviously wind, they're going to have a part to play, you know, hydrogen, you know, maybe at some point. But in the meantime, it, it, it's hard to say no to gas. It's hard to say no to gas. And that's probably a good place uh, for us to leave it on. Uh, so that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thanks to Ed and Hamish for joining me. I'm now going to go off and try to convince Ed to record a Pitbull cover when we release <laughs> that as a, a special podcast. But for now, that's it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.